Hello and welcome to Undercommon Taste. This is a podcast where we create and discuss homebrew content for tabletop RPGs. Seizing me, he led me down to the House of Darkness, the dwelling of Akala, the house where those who enter do not come out, and along the road of no return, to the house to those who have gone and dwell without light, where their dirt is drink and their food is of clay. Epic of Gilgamesh, Tablet 7. I'm Ian Woodworth, and I'm joined by my co-host James Daly. Today, we are taking our third trek into the Outer Plains, covering Hades, the Grey Wastes, the Plain of Evil. <laughs> so was that a was no, that, that intentional? Was, that was intentional. That was not a twitch, though I do have my evil left twitch. Yes, that's why but, I had to ask. Yes, no. That was too perfect not to throw in my Bond villain laugh. Had to do it. That was on purpose. <laughs> yeah, so as I mentioned, Hades, being the plane of evil, was originally just called the Grey Waste. And you will see why once we start getting into it. Because it is drab and dreary and it sucks all of the happiness out of everything. Yeah, I have so many mixed feelings about this plane. It is drab, it's dreary, it's soul-draining very much. Like in a, in a very Fell literal was. sense. Yes, very much like Shadowfell was. Like By the end, if you go back and listen to our Shadowfell content, we actually have a content warning on there. Because I know both Ian and I were feeling pretty black by the end of that podcast. Hades has very much that same feel. That said, there is a whole lot more going on here. Again, when you get to these outer planes, the creators, wizards, TSR... They took all of the mythologies and kind of just smooshed them together as best as they could and threw them out there. So if you're a lore buff, a folklore, a fantasy, that kind of thing, it's fascinating. It's also very drab. You don't want to stay here, most likely. So it's very, I don't know what the word I am looking for it is. It's very much a slog, but it's also, on the other hand, there's a lot to look at and a lot to do and a lot to cover. I think drab pretty much covers it. Yeah, drab does. I'm trying to think. It's more active than drab, though. Like, the more you read, you're like, this sucks. Yeah. This sucks even worse. I don't want to read the next thing because this sucks. Oh, my God, they touched on this lore. That's cool. Wait, this sucks. Yeah, It has a very, for those of you who are familiar with the Dresden Files or with Stephen King's Dark Tower series, this has a very white court vampire, emotional vampire feel to it because would, it, it sucks the emotions out. I will grant you that, but even the white court vampire, they suck the emotions out by creating that frenzy or that initial response. This doesn't even give you that. It just drains it from you. Right. This this is like the best thing I can describe is, again, going back to who framed Roger Rabbit and you walk into that area and you get to the old area where you go from Technicolor to black and white. And it's just that, boo. you know, that's kind of what this feels like. All right. So we got to talking a little bit before we started recording. Strangely enough, we do discuss the podcast before we record. Yeah. Heaven forbid. <laughs> but there was a topic that we wanted to bring up before we really got into the meat of tonight's episode. We have on several occasions referred to petitioners and petitioners are something that is almost exclusive to the Outer Plains. You do have a few petitioners present in the Shadowfell, specifically, I think, in Ravenloft in the Dread Domains. You actually get quite a few there because, again, as we'll discuss, the Raven Queen does tend to sort where the petitioners are headed. Right, and that is more of a 5th edition thing because in 3rd edition, the Raven Queen didn't exist yet. And so in 
third edition, Kelimvor, the lawful neutral god of the dead, was the one in charge of this particular sorting job. So Kelimvor's job has been more or less usurped by the Raven Queen in fifth edition. Right. Because all of the edgy goth fanboys had to have their big titty goth girlfriend. You know what? I'm not going to (laughs) complain. I mean, don't get me wrong. I like the Raven Queen, just not as much as everyone else seems to like the Raven Queen. I don't know. Like I said, the Raven Queen reminds me of Rastlin. We've discussed Rastlin. Read the Dragonlance novels. If you haven't, I believe that was Cataclysm Arc. They were back in the 80s and 90s, but they're unread. Rastlin, hands down, one of my favorite D&D characters. Gotta love them. But anyway, like Ian said, we had mentioned these petitioners before, and I had noticed that we never actually defined who or what a petitioner was. And, and going back, this actually took a bit of delving on Ian and I's part both because 5th edition just says, I don't even think 5th edition really mentions petitioners. No. Because we get so little on the Outer Plains. 3rd edition just petitioners. And so we actually had to go back into 2nd edition and Planescape to figure out who the hell these people are. Yeah. So what petitioners are, petitioners are the souls of the dead that have been, it was originally they were taken to the Fugue Plane which is where all of the dead souls went. And then Kelimvor would sort them according to their merits or demerits and send them to the plane that they were supposed to go to. Either the plane to whatever god they had claimed or deified or wherever their actions had aligned them closest to. That is a bit of an important point because if you claimed one god but your actions did not reflect that in one way or another... That would cause some issues we'll, we'll get to later. Yeah, but they do mention that most of your mortals in the Forgotten Realms and Dragonlance and all of these, most of them are polytheistic. They are going to be acknowledging the existence of different gods and they will be praying to different gods depending on their needs. Which so if is you prayed to Krom even once. <laughs> exa- which is exactly how a polytheistic pantheon would work. works. Yeah, exa- exactly. So that makes total sense. And it's really hard. Western culture tends to be, you know, primarily monotheistic now. That can be something hard for most people to wrap their brains around. But, you know, it is what it is. So there you go. Yeah, I mean, if you were in Rome, you wouldn't pray to Neptune to have a good harvest. You would see here, who would you be praying to? Was that... Uh... Oh, hell. For what? <laughs> for like an agrarian, like a, if you're a farmer and you want a good harvest. Oh, if you wanted a good harvest, that would probably be Saturn, Saturnalia, you know, obviously the god of crops. Yeah. Yeah, I was just drawing a, a complete blank. Yeah. Jupiter for any kind of business dealings, Hermes or Mercury, if you're doing any kind of trade, travel, mercantile stuff. Again, Neptune, if you had to take any kind of sea voyage. So, and if you were, say, hey, a spice merchant and you were growing a crop of spices or something to be sent, and you were selling them and you had to sell them across the sea so you had to take a sea voyage and a land voyage, it's not uncommon that you would go and you'd pay tribute to all of these gods at once because if you left one out, you may have pissed them off and now they're going to spite you just because you've forgotten them. So you definitely want to make sure all of your bases were covered. And then you have gods like Janus. So like if you wanted something that would require a certain amount of luck, so like you're running for office and you have an election coming up. Leave it to the Gemini to bring up Janus. Yeah. Just putting well, that out there. <laughs> hey, I am totally bringing up Janus because of the show Rome. Oh, I love that series. That was such a great series. Because, uh, oh, what is it? Lucius Verant? 
Virilius? Yes. Whenever he is trying to get elected as a senator, there's a whole scene where he is making his offering to Janice. So that's what reminded me of that. But anyway, we're getting off topic. So if you were a strict adherent to one particular deity and your actions reflected the domains of that deity, whenever you die, do you get sorted and get sent off to the realm of that god? If you were what is considered a normal petitioner, if you were just a normal polytheistic person, Kelimvor would weigh your actions and your deeds and he would sort you to the realm of the god from your pantheon that your actions most aligned you with. And then you had what were called the faithless and the false. And this is where it starts to get interesting. So the faithless... These are your atheists. These are the people who never believed in a deity. Either they never knew that a god existed, so they were living under a rock in these D&D worlds, or they never actually paid homage to any of them. So if they only paid lip service to their god. And if that happens, you end up getting your soul stuck into the Wall of the Faithless, which is the wall surrounding the city of the dead in the first level of Hades that is simply there as a punishment for the people who don't believe in a god in a world where gods are real tangible individuals that you can talk to if you have a strong enough magic. Right. So yeah, that wall of the faithless is kind of a terrifying thing. The way I pictured this is if you've ever played the game Dante's Inferno or Xbox 360, it may have been for the playstation uh as well i don't i'm pretty sure it was also for playstation and pc yeah but you go through and as you get in some of the deeper levels the walls of the realms are made with just this mangled mass of bodies and faces which added a lot to the atmosphere and the immersion for the game and again that's kind of what i picture when they talk about this and so that's what happened to the ones who either chose not to worship a god or didn't know that the gods existed and then you have the false so the false were the people who intentionally turned away from their faith so these would be like your oathbreaker paladins these are your heretics heretics and blasphemers and so they end up getting sent to the city of judgment basically for labor in the afterlife right you get a life of hard labor you're gonna dig 16 tons yeah except you're not getting any older but you're definitely getting deeper in diet so that's kind of miserable but this isn't the most interesting thing well there are a couple of little interesting things one is that apparently kelimvor would allow a certain number of demons to come into the City of Judgment to torture the citizens that were stuck there. Just because there wasn't enough spice in the world, so just there you go. And the line here says, The only one who could stop it was Kelimvor, but he was known for never doing this. Well, there you go. He just didn't give a damn. And then the part that James was alluding to is... A false could not be resurrected without the consent of the deity from whom the soul swayed in life and only after that deity negotiated with Kelimvor. This could have been so many campaign hooks. How has this not been done a bajillion times into the dirt? 
oh my god, anytime you know a party, you have a high level party and someone dies, well, I'm just going to cast you no resurrection. Oh, look, I've got a whole bag of diamonds, and sure, it's going to cost me a ton of XP and gold, but we can do it because that's our friend. No, here's a whole other story arc you got to go through to resurrect your buddy friend, you know? Oh my god, this could have made for some absolutely astounding stories. So sad I've not seen this happen more. Yeah, remember that alignment shift five levels ago? Yeah, (laughs) you've got some problems now. (laughs) Remember when you broke your paladin oath? Yeah. (laughs) Paylor is still pissed about that, by the way. You should probably go and take care of that first. You're going to have to work some afterlife karma out. Yeah. You want to bring Buddy back, you're going to have to go and do some great big favors for Paylor. It's going to take more than lighting a candle or two. Oh, yeah. So again, a really good story arc. And this kind of gives you an idea of who or what the petitioners are. Going back for a feel, this kind of has a very Catholic feel to things. Again, you've got your whole Divine Comedy, Inferno, Pregatorio, Paradiso. Kind of getting a little bit of your City de Muertos, uh, you know, Dias de Muertos. Again, with a very strong Catholic feel. And as we said at the beginning, a lot of these outer realms have all of your mythologies kind of just mushed and shoehorned together. So this is where you're going to wind up getting a lot of your more Christian, Catholic, Protestant to a small flavor influence in these things. As we start dealing with the various levels of Hades itself, I mean, given the name Hades, obviously some Greek. We're going to see some Greek. We're going to see some Roman. Uh, we're going to see some like Sumerian and Babylonian. That's the Epic of Gilgamesh as the intro quote. And also some Norse. Some Norse as well, yeah. So there's going to be a lot to handle. Our hands are going to be fairly full, much like they were with Elysium. There's going to be a lot to digest. So we may go a little long in this episode, possibly, just because there's a lot to handle. That said, as we will be talking about petitioners so frequently and we have in the past, we wanted to make sure the concept of who a petitioner was was fairly well rounded out. All right, so let's go ahead and get right into... Delve into the depths. (laughs) Yeah, so as I mentioned before, Hades was originally just called the Grey Waste. And now it is called the Grey Waste of Hades. The Grey Waste is a fairly neutral term, which I like. Again, kicking back to those Babylonian, you're just sitting there eating mud in the darkness. It was a wonderful afterlife. I appreciated that it was originally just called the Grey Waste because the god Hades is here. He's sitting in the third layer of Hades. Well, I mean, where else is he going to be? And so, (laughs) I mean, I appreciated that the TSR Grey Waste was just called the Grey Waste and didn't pull in this common mythological name for the underworld and afterlife just because it delineated between the god and the place. I get that, but again, it makes it relatable, and that is definitely something that D&D and Wizards particularly have made a big push for, is making the game more relatable. So the Grey Waste has a good sound. It's actually a pretty awesome name. But... People are going to key into Hades and they are going to know, okay, this is going to be where bad people go. This is where the evil folk are, that kind of thing. Tartarus would have probably been a good name to come up with too. That's more Roman. Tartarus is attached to one of the other planes. Okay, so that's I don't, I don't remember. They... I don't remember if, if it's a whole plane or if it's just one of the layers of one of the planes. I think it's one of the layers of the Nine Hills. Gotcha. Don't, yeah. don't quote me on that. I think they did the same with, was it Nord something? Something that's the, the Norse one. Where the frost giants live. Jotunheim? Jotunheim? Yeah. I, th- I, I, think, believe... I think Jotunheim is part of Arborea, maybe? Perhaps, yeah. So again, you get these, they've taken the various mythologies and kind of thrown them in. Hades, yes, there's Hercules. You've got the Disney Hercules. People are going to relate to Hades. You can't call it just hell. That's two out there. And you get 
a bunch of pearl clutchers clutching pearls. So well, you can't call it hell because we already have Bator the nine hells. Yeah, granted. So again, it makes sense. It's kind of a roundabout name. It's the best name. I think the Gray Wastes fit better. But people can key in and know exactly what we're talking about when we say Hades. Because when you call it Hades, you know that it's evil. Right. Because that's the common mental image that you draw from that, mainly because of Christian (laughs) mythologies. Not Disney. Was that? So not Disney. Oh, that too. (laughs) Because for so long, Hell and Hades have been considered synonymous incorrectly so but have been considered synonymous in i think it started in renaissance italian writing i could be wrong but i think that's around where it started yeah again we're going back to and where you have Um, the neoclassical movement where they're starting to revive all of the roman mythologies and it starts becoming very big in europe again so the concept of hell and hades starts to get conflated with one another and again we can do multiple episodes just mythology dives on hades hell the afterlife the different versions is it a great pit is it a pond is it a lake of fire are there little demons with pitchforks stabbing you are you forever pushing a boulder up the hill there's so much to unwrap so let's go ahead and dive into what wizards have given us and tsr from the text as we have written so once again the fifth edition DMG has come up yeah, short. That's a bounty, an absolute bounty of knowledge. A, a bounteous single paragraph of knowledge about Hades. Hell's bad, okay? Yeah, <laughs> Hades is bad too. So you have Hades, and you have the one optional rule that they've tacked on called Vile Transformation. This is something that has persisted through all of the editions, so I'm glad that they kept it, even if most of the teeth have been taken out of it. So as it sits right now, at the end of each long rest, you have to make a DC 10 wisdom save. On a failed save, you get one level of exhaustion that cannot be removed until you leave Hades. If you reach six levels of exhaustion, you don't die but you become transformed into a larva, which is this little CR0 creature with nine hit points that is basically used as a food and spell reagent source for all of the powerful fiends that run around the underworld. You were talking about the big titty goth girlfriend, and now we're going to be crushing worms beneath our heels. This isn't tying into anything. I'm not king-shaming the authors here, but just putting that out there. (laughs) But yeah, you do become a worm, and then not only do you become a spell reagent and, you know, a very squishable squishy, the night hags actually use these things as currency. So you get passed around like a simple coin. Yeah, that does happen too. Which, all in all, I still kind of like better than the whole Elysium. You just want to stay here forever, and it wipes away your will. At least, I mean, this way takes your form. But you still have thoughts and ambition, you just have no ability to actually do anything about it, where the other way strips your mind, which to me is almost worse. So the way it used to work is you had one will save at the end of each week. So it becomes a once a week as opposed to a once a long rest. But if you failed that one save, you become lost to despair, meaning that basically you lose all control of your character, your character just wanders the wastes, unable to do anything meaningful and your buddies have six months to come to Hades and find you and bring you back and if you run out of time if they take longer than six months to get you then you turn into a larva right that despair mechanics really wonky 
And I don't know if they kept it for fifth edition because I was reading some other things. So it's probably the later editions, but that despair actually affects how you travel. If you are walking any place with a goal, it takes longer. If you just give up and say, I'm just walking wherever I go, I'm going to go. You'll eventually find yourself where you're headed. But if you are moving with a goal, you will never get there. And again, pop culture references. I've seen like four episodes of SpongeBob. But the one episode I've seen is the episode where they've got like the impossible destination. They've got to deliver Krusty Krabs or whatever the hell they have. And so they just wander around aimlessly till they're teleported to this wacky zone. Again, I've seen maybe four episodes of this one. I've seen maybe twice. But that kind of aimless wandering to get where you're going was kind of done perfectly by SpongeBob of all places. So there you go. <laughs> yeah, And to speak back to asking about the despair mechanic in 5th edition, it does say in the DMG that you can go ahead and use the Shadowfell despair mechanic whenever you are in Hades. So that does bring it back to how similar the two are. So another thing that you have within Hades is a condition that is called the Greys. This is from older editions. This is from second, third edition. So anyone who didn't have at least a spell resistance of 10. So you would have to have some sort of magical gadget or trinket that would give you spell resistance in order to avoid having to do this. If you didn't have at least spell resist 10, you had to make a DC 13 will save once per day. And if you failed that save, you took one point of wisdom damage that couldn't be removed until you left Hades. So that would make the end of the week will save to avoid becoming lost to despair a whole lot more difficult. Yeah, that can get insidious, particularly if you're spending a long time running around in here trying to figure out or find your MacGuffin or whatever it is you're here for. And the other notable detail about the entire plane is there's a reason it's called the Gray Wastes. It's because everything is in grayscale. Exactly. Kind of like I talked at the beginning, like when you go to Toonville and you go from that Technicolor world to that monochrome black and white. That's very much here. So again, all of that color is gone. It is monochrome. It is black and white. So physically and emotionally and in every possible way you can imagine, it's just very black. So I, I didn't find this as a mechanic in the third edition book, but I did find it in the second edition Planescape book that whenever you go to Hades, chromatically oriented spells, so things like Prismatic Sphere or color spray just don't work in Hades. I wonder what this would do to chromatic dragons. Well, I mean, they'd still be chromatic dragons. They'd just look gray. They would still have their whole dragon elemental thing because it doesn't change the nature of the thing. Okay. But any of the color-based magic just doesn't work at all. Imagine approaching a dragon trying to figure out, okay, so I mean, this would definitely be a higher level scenario, or you'd need definitely some veteran players, but you approach an enclave of dragons and you're trying to curry favor or impress one or two of them with your various gifts or whatnot, and you have to figure out which color the dragons are without seeing them so you know who to give your gifts to for the biggest benefit. Right. So that would be where you have to learn the physical details of how the horns and the ridges and all of that present on your different colors of dragons. Or their moods or how they react with things. I mean, this would be a great dragon lore campaign. That would be actually an amazing... Yeah, that would be kind of cool. And the other magical thing is that spells that affect emotions don't work. So any of your enchantment spells that affect a creature's emotional state, they just don't work in Hades. Yeah, it's like there's an overall antipathy sympathy, 
antipathy on everything and it's permanent yeah that is pretty much somebody cast antipathy at 11th level and it just stays there it sticks (laughs) yeah (laughs) all right now that that's out of the way that's the general stuff to go over for all three layers together these are the mechanics of how the atmosphere and the environment of hades works yes now again as we get into the topography and the geography and the actual locations now we can start building our map and kind of putting our things in but all of these layers have these different aspects in common these are all going to be throughout and another thing to keep in mind is that hades is one of the battlegrounds for the blood war particularly the first layer of Oinos. Now this, talking about the Blood War, this kind of sets up a weird cognitive conflict in my brain. There is a constant fight and battle, but at the same time, there's no drive or emotion or push. And so these beings and these entities are just fighting, but there's no rage, there's no heroism, there's no hatred. They're just automatons just going out smashing at each other almost. Like I said, it kind of makes that weird kind of breaking my brain cerebral conflict. The reason why it is one of the battlefields of the Blood War is because the River Styx goes through it. The primary plane for the Blood War, if I'm remembering correctly, is actually Acris, which is called the Eternal Battlefield. It is a slightly more lawfully aligned evil plane. That might be correct. I'm not entirely certain. And again, uh, my depth into the Blood War is not near deep as it should be, or probably as deep as it's going to be in the next few weeks. Well, we are going to figure that out by the time we get to Acris. That's what I was saying. (laughs) So we may be retconning a lot of the stuff that we just said here in a few weeks. But yeah, so this is one of the planes where the blood war is happening. That is something to keep in mind. So there are going to be a lot of fiends present, especially on the first layer. So you're going to have demons and devils and eucaloths all together duking it out all the time. Exactly. And so these random battles are a great thing to pop up in front of your party members as they're traveling through. Whether or not they get roped into fight or not, whether they are just, you know, a band of murder hobos and want to fight every fight they see. Or they get jumped by a roving band of demons or devils. Right. Yeah, I mean, that could be a thing, but I would even like, they are trying to get somewhere, but the path is blocked by, you know, a small skirmish going on. If they can choose to join the fray, they can try to figure out some way to maybe sneak around. I would put this in just to test your players' personalities to see, again, do they actually try to attack every single thing they see? Or are they going to use their thinkers and try to think their way around a problem? Are they going to be apathetic enough not to care and just walk through it and, oh, if I fight, I fight? Which would be great role play. And I would definitely want to give my players a bonus if they encountered a scenario in this fashion. But... Again, this is just a random challenge you could throw up as much as a boulder or a block or a tree or a chasm could be if your patch is blocked by a small skirmish of demons and devils. Absolutely. So as I mentioned, and is not mentioned in the 5th edition DMG, there are actually three layers to Hades. The first level is called Oinos. One, two, three, ah, ah, ah. Yeah, Oinos, O-I-N-O-S. It is filled with stunted trees pestilence and packs of fiends there are clouds of disease like literal clouds of miasma disease that float around oinos because we don't need enough stuff to throw out our party members at this point yeah we've got those too yes and this is the layer where yugoloths are native to it is established that most of the yugoloths have moved away from oinos and have moved on to acarus 
but there is still a large contingent of Yugoloths here because there is a citadel called Keen Oin, the Wasting Tower, in this first layer of Hades where the Yugoloths spawn. Now, the Wasting Tower, I mean, just by itself, is kind of really awesome. And if you want to do a quick one or two off or start a mid-level campaign, I mean, you wouldn't really want first level characters. You'd probably want like 10th or higher, but get a quick party together and just throw them at level one of this wasting tower. And you can make a very standard tower dungeon because at the throne of this wasting tower, whoever holds the throne becomes, I forget what the title of this person is, but they get to control whatever pestilence or disease is creeping around on the first layer of Hades. And so it's like, here, you're just going to the top to see who becomes crowned. So that could be a lot of fun. It's having the party fight their way through and either maybe bring an NPC up with them to change something for some reason, or maybe get the party at the top and then have a king of a hill amongst the party members to see who's going to actually get to sit on this throne. Yeah, so the throne itself is called the Siege Malicious. Which is which an is, awesome name. Which is metal AF. And the individual who sits upon the Siege Malicious, or in this case is attuned to the Siege Malicious, because they don't have to be sitting on it to be able to control it, is called the Oinoloth. And yeah, basically the Siege Malicious controls the disease clouds that float around the first layer of Hades. And one of the cool things is if you are the Oinoloth, you can choose a creature that you can see within 300 feet of you and you can either create a brand new disease or you can modify an existing disease and just say, you got it. No save. That is, oh my God. Now I know pre-pandemic you used to do some one-offs for the library, your local library yes. and some various game groups. I would love to see you do something or I might have to put something together so you can actually play. But this would be perfect for one of those. Here's an all night game night. We are doing this. And again, get some mid-level pre-made characters, have a party go together and just have them fight their way to the top and see who wins a King of the Hill type battle. Now, there is a downside to being the Oinoloth. There is a disease that you get for sitting atop the Siege Malicious, and it's called the Grey Wasting. And basically what it does is it transforms your skin into a mass of mucus and rotting flesh. So you take, I think it's like 1d6 charisma damage whenever you sit on it. It's not easy being king. So it's 1d4 points of permanent charisma drain totally for, the, for the third edition book. I mean, it's great because you literally get to direct the clouds. You get to shift them around wherever you want. So if you are aligned with the devils, you can shift the clouds around to overwhelm clusters of demons and infest them with these different wasting diseases. So yeah, that's another aspect to the whole thing. This kind of reminds me of, in Skyrim, one of the stories in the books was the guy came across, I believe it was the Daedra of Plagues, and he asked for power. And so when the Daedra finally consented, this person had to have some visible form of some disease active at any given time, some visible symptom. But then they could make people either feel sorry for them or ignore them at the person's whim. So this person became like a spy king and the king of like the homeless and the hobos and stuff like that per Skyrim lore, which was kind of a neat thing. This seems relatable to me in that regard. Not quite exact, but I kind of get the same feel of a character. You could build a lot of lore and a lot of story around what you're going to do with this onolith if you so chose. I think that's Periate that 
that Periite is the Daedric Prince of Pestilence. Possibly. Again, I am terrible at names. So just stepping back for a second to talk about the Wasting Tower itself, because it is worthy of being talked about by itself. The Wasting Tower is 20 miles tall. That's it, just 20 miles. And... Some say that its basement levels go down another 20 miles. But this is the seat from where the Yugoloths are spawned. It is said that because it looks like a giant spinal column, and some people say that it is the spine of a god that the Yugoloths killed. Again, absolutely metal. Yeah. So you have a dead god's spinal column that these guys live in. And at the top is a giant chair that lets you control clouds of disease. I'm not sure if I'm seeing like the frozen lich throne from WoW or if I'm seeing like maybe a giant predator ship where they're all just kind of gathered around. This is like their ultimate trophy. (laughs) It is scaled for a large sized creature. It is scaled for like a nine foot tall person to be sitting on. So, you know, most of your player characters are going to look like my daughter who is three and a half who tries to sit in a chair at the dinner table. That's kind of what they're going to look like whenever they sit on this thing. Absolutely. Doing something kind of like the Iron Throne from Game of Thrones 2, where maybe it's just a bunch of broken weapons and bodies all melded into one giant thing. It could be bones. I mean, just this throne itself, you could do so many things with. Oh, I think that you could totally give the seat a feel for the gray wasting itself. And so it looks like... It's this seat made from mounds of rotting flesh. Yeah, you could totally do that. And it's always like slick with mucus. That would work. I would see the walls and the way this line. It's kind of like we talked about the uh, oh, the wall of the... Oh, I'm blanking on the name again. Yeah, the, the wall of the faithless. Yes, the wall of the faithless, something like that. And I've mentioned this in other episodes before, but there is a cathedral in Rome, Our Lady of Immaculate Conception, where they actually built the inner catacombs and temple with the bones of the friars and abbots that worked there. They had Holy Land brought from Jerusalem. And as a friar or monk would die, they would bury them in that Holy Land and exhume a body. And as they exhumed the body, they used the bones from that body to add and build on to this chapel or catacomb. And so you can find these online. It's actually kind of a cool thing, particularly on Halloween. So I have a description of the Siege Malicious from the third edition Manual of the Plains. Okay, perfect. Just verbatim this paragraph. The Siege Malicious is a major artifact. It is a gargantuan, immovable throne carved from the stone of the Wasting Tower itself. The throne is inlaid with tarnished silver, base copper, and brass. A circular crown of rubies adorns the top of the high seat, which is just large enough to sit a huge creature. Many medium-sized creatures would look ridiculous sitting on the Siege Malicious with their legs dangling several feet off the ground. I like it. This is perfect. So that's what it looks like. It's a giant... I'm picturing it. It's going to have that yellow-white look because it is a tower that looks like a spinal column. So I'm picturing it as being, you know, bone-colored, like ivory bone colored okay kind of like a dirty alabaster perhaps yeah kind of yeah that's sort of the look that i'm seeing but it is a giant stone throne carved from the bone of the tower itself and it's got the silver that's been tarnished black and the copper i would say that the copper itself has been tarnished green okay i could see a grain or just that really kind of dingy brown oh yeah yeah that brownish patina that That i get sometimes look yeah yeah 
Yeah, okay. And then the brass. I don't know. I... Brass would either go green or a little dull, but I wouldn't say it had a lot of brass. I think the brass would still be semi-bright. Yeah. I... Brass doesn't corrode too terribly well. It's actually one of the nice things about brass. Yeah. But those rubies, those rubies have to spark. And I would almost say that the crown that adorns the top of the seat that the rubies are set in, I would almost set those rubies in brass to make that crown at the top. And that's the only brass on his thing. Yeah, I, I could see that. Personally, I would see more of a red brass than a yellow brass. Okay. Just because it gives that whole... I think at that point, a yellow brass with some green in it, because it would have, oh, that, yeah. it would Actually, have that disease yeah. rotting look to it. Yeah. Now that it's coming out of my mouth, yeah. I think the yellow brass would actually, with, with like... With some big, of that verdigris on it, yeah. With little, you know, patches of verdigris on it, yeah. Yeah, okay. That would definitely work. <laughs> and this is how we come up with ideas, folks. <laughs> this is exactly how we come... And honestly, if you are building your campaign, which we absolutely... Please do. This is how you should probably build a campaign. This is great because find someone, obviously, who's not in your campaign unless you've got an amazing character who can play, even if they know everything... That, and just start brainstorming and bouncing ideas off each other. That's really how my best ideas come out. And as I said way back in the beginning, this is something that Ian and I have always done fairly well. Is we take our bad ideas and we tweak them and make them just a little bit worse, but more functional. And so some of our really fun ideas come from this kind of brainstorming. Having someone you can bounce ideas off of is always a super good idea. Yeah, and it's great to find someone who knows a lot about things that you don't. because just so they can add different flavors. Yeah. Because they will be able to draw from a different pool of information than you. And then they will come to different conclusions than you because of that. Perfect. And that's been your world building tip for the day. <laughs> <laughs> and scene. So that pretty much wraps up the whole of the first layer. Not entirely, because on your first layer, you've got your Yugoloths, you've got your Devils and Demons. On your first layer is also where you're going to Find some of Ian's favorite characters, but your night hags are really going to be primarily on your top layer. They're not going to be found as much on your lower layers of Hades. So your night hags are going to be here. Here, they're going to be scrounging for spell reagents, particularly those larvae, as we spoke of. They're going to be finding demons and devils to deal with because night hags are always about a deal and a trade of some sort. And absolutely if your party's been you know hounded harassed by night hag maybe you've chased her back here maybe you're seeking a night hag out to work out a deal of your own but you can really do all kinds of stuff and once you deal with your night hags night hags are ex arch fey so now you can really start branching in your fey wild into here as well so now you've got dreamscapes you've got fey wild you've got the night hags you can start sucking in all kinds of different things and pulling them to this point. And as I said at the beginning of the episode, as drab and as gray, pun intended, as this area seems, there's so many lores and so many mechanical pieces that you can grab and plunk in that just work in this area. So there's so much you can do while everything's boring and pointless and nothing works anyway. So it all sucks. So what are we doing it? <laughs> right. And as I mentioned in the episode where we had Moth Prophet on, Night Hags being here is a really important point because the Yugoloths were created by the Night Hags. They were basically a commission job from Asmodeus who wanted an army that was not bound to the Nine Hells to fight for him in the Blood War. So that's where the Yugoloths came from in the first place. And then they wound up being this third party mercenary party. They're mercenaries. 
you know, Yugolots are mercenaries. They will go to whichever side is paying better at that particular time. Exactly. So again, when you're coming in with striking deals or bargains to get things, this area is full of opportunities for Faustine bargains. Strangely enough, Faustine bargains talking about, I can never say the guy's name right. Mestopheles, there we go, belonging to the various hells and things like that. But that concept of these Faustian bargains or these evil deals going back and forth or these deals that come at such a high price, full of it, particularly on this first layer. The other thing is people that tend to fight, making sure I'm not getting my layers mixed up. But your undead Norse, your Einherjarn, are going to be fighting in this as well. Uh, not necessarily on one side or other, but it's an eternal battlefield. So not quite Valhalla where you have Odin's Hall where everyone's feasting. But again, this is another one of those eternal battlefields. So you're going to be finding a lot of those undead Norse and a lot of those mythos that you can start throwing in. So if you want to do a Nordic or a Norse mythos type theme and you need to go not into Jotunheim or Niflheim or anything like that, you can really come in here to this first level of Hades and have a whole lot thrown in. And why not? Your Norse people die and they're all ready for battle. And now they are fighting entire pantheons of the afterlife that they hadn't expected. What more glorious battle is that? Yeah. Um, now the Einherjar, as we mentioned in the Elysium episode, tend to be an upper plains group. That being said, I could see groups of them coming down and fighting in the blood war, particularly if there was a front that was breaking in such a way that it could change the balance in the blood war and the deities in the upper realms send them down to reinforce the breaking side to maintain the stalemate of the blood war because a stalemate keeps things exactly where they're at and you don't have to deal with a problem later yeah it keeps the evil contained to the lower planes we're not going to make any statements about u.s foreign policy here or anything but uh... (laughs) You know, stalemates work to our advantage. Yeah, but that is the way that the upper planes view the blood war is they want the demons and the devils fighting each other because it means that neither one of them becomes powerful enough to focus their attention elsewhere. And so that way they don't have to worry about defending the upper planes from incursion from the lower planes. And they don't have to worry about the demons or the devils making large incursions into, say, the material plane, thereby requiring the upper planes to provide planetars and other, you know, celestials to act as a counter to the evil. Right. And then going back, I would love, love to see the March of the Modrons just wander through here. (laughs) I mean, they'd be getting picked up. How, what, what number? It's like watching the baby salmon, you know, as they come out from fries going down, trying to get to the ocean where they're just, you know, getting obliterated by the score and there's just more, coming through you just have this line of modrons just walking through battlefields like la 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 nothing's going on they're just marching through <laughs> right yeah so i guess we'll follow the modrons down to the next plane well down to the, the next, next layer level. yeah so the second layer of hades is niflheim which is the underworld of norse myth right now again as we say these aren't layers like a cake like one on top of the other they're kind of co-planar and they all intersect at a certain point So it's kind of hard to imagine, but you're not like going downstairs to Niflheim. You're not going upstairs to Niflheim because obviously the the top, you're kind of going across and over. Yeah. If that makes any sense. Yeah. I mean, there's the same thing for all of the planes that have multiple layers. So like in Elysium, you don't 
really go from the first to the second layer as in, you know, dropping down an elevator shaft. It does transition from one to another at certain nexus points. So there are going to be locations where they sort of converge so you can transition from one to another. But all of these outer planes, you've got deities that have their own individual realms within. So they've got demiplanes within the planes that creates a whole muddled jumble of planes and demiplanes and layers. And it you have to stop thinking about geography in the sense of how geography works in the real world. You kind of have a, have a sense of it like you would if you've ever read Ender's Game where you're in space and every direction is up and every direction is down. And it's really whatever direction you choose to set it as. It kind of goes that way. Yes. All right. So Niflheim carries the gray theme throughout it, but you go from this sort of scorched, stunted wasteland kind of look. Think of how the world looks in the Fallout games, where it's that sort of blasted scrub kind of look that's kind of how i see oinos because it is an eternal battlefield once you get into niflheim it becomes these mist obscured pine forests so it's this very old scandinavian coniferous forest kind of deal i would say probably even you know snow on the ground just to play into that whole vision of it yeah that is a good way to kind of picture things Think of your North European lands, because again, this is going to be your Norse kind of plane. So again, things are blasted, kind of blighted, the depth of winter. So if it's not dead, it's probably dormant. It's not going to be a bright, shiny area. It's going to be just, like I said, the dead of winter. Everything's very plain. Everything's very dry and drab. Yeah. And so this is where the goddess Hell, the Norse goddess of death, makes her domain. Her domain is her palace. It is a wooden palace that, quote, has poison dripping from the ceiling and the floor is covered in snakes. Just because. And this palace becomes the exact opposite of Valhalla. Again, there are people feasting in a hall. But this poison drips into people's food, and so they are starving and they're ravenous, but they can't eat it lest they become poisoned, and they know it. Yes. That said, every once in a while, someone fails their constitution or their will save and starts gorging themselves on the food, in which case they immediately become violently ill and disgorge everything they've eaten just right there in front of everybody at the table. So it's kind of like everyone's sitting around. It's going to stink. It's going to be nasty. And these are the halls for people that died while fleeing battle or refused to fight for a cause. These are for the cowardly dead. Yes. And there is a root from Yggdrasil, the world tree, that grows into her palace. And wrapped around this root of Yggdrasil is the serpent Nithog, who is chewing on the root of the tree and will eventually kill the tree. Now, this is interesting both if you actually want to delve into your Norse mythology. In Marvel, you saw Hel in Thor Ragnarok, and she was a bastard child of Odin. In actual Norse mythology, both the serpent, I forget the serpent's name, and Hel are the children of Loki. Yeah, and I think it's still Nithog. I think Is it Nithog? Yeah, I think so, because Jormungandr is the world serpent. Okay, so yeah, Nithog, and again, terrible names, and Hel... And is it Fenris, which is the wolf? Yes, Fenris is the wolf. All three of them, which are going to bring out Ragnarok and the end of the world, all three are, in fact, the children of Loki. 
which is an interesting little twist. Loki himself in Norse mythology was not evil. He was definitely chaotic, but he would definitely be chaotic neutral in Norse mythology. You know, as Western flavors try to take him, we try to make him the evil god because he's the closest thing to a deceiver or Satan that we have. But very neutral in Norse mythology. Slepnir is also a child of Loki. Yes. Odin's eight-legged rainbow horse. Which Loki was the mom. We'll let you wrap your brain around that one just Um, for fun. (laughs) I I will find a link to the drunk mythology video and put it in the show notes because it is absolutely worth watching. But so the uh, Planescape book does specifically say that you can kill Nithog and save the world tree if you wanted to. But if you did, quote, her place would be taken by one of her children. So what's the point? As everything that influences Hades and the Grey Waste, you really come down to what's the point, really? Yeah. (laughs) The despair kicks in and is like, why even? Yeah. And again, if you deal with depression or anything like that, I know a lot of us do. That feel of just, it's not uselessness, but irrelevance really weighs in heavily with anything you're going to do in this realm. So again, like I said, wrapping my brain around this, I do have to kind of stave those feelings off because... I will get that existential nihilist kind of, it doesn't matter, so what? Yeah. So within this layer of Hades, there is also a town called Death of Innocence, which has a wooden palisade wall covered in spikes, which oozes blood like sap, which is, again, kind of metal. Very metal, yes. And it is believed that the blood which seeps from the walls of this town is the blood from the bodies of the petitioners because petitioners in Hades become incorporeal. So their body just sort of disappears and they become this ethereal gray shadow of themselves. And so it is believed that the blood from the body that has disappeared is what is oozing out of the walls of this town. Right. And again, to be a petitioner kind of sucks and everything has this rotting, wasting, corroded, corrupted feel to it. Less so once you get out of the first layer. Because, Less so, because yeah, the poison, even... because the disease clouds don't extend beyond the first layer. But yes, it is still a very drab, dreary, depressing sort of place. But one of the interesting features of this town is that once you get within the walls you're no longer under the effects of the entrapping trait of Hades. So you don't have to make the saves versus giving into despair. And you're also immune to the grays, which is the disease that will reduce your wisdom score and make it harder to make your save against the entrapping trait. And there are individuals within this town that are actually trying to make it a better place. They're actually making an effort because you don't have that crushing despair all the time whenever you're inside of here. And there are actually mundane mortals living in this town. So, yeah, that kind of gives you a feel for things. Again, it's I don't know. It becomes weird. This almost becomes like a city of dis, but not quite ish, I suppose. Whenever you come into town, you know, the streets are empty because the people who live here tend to stay indoors. I mean, understandably so. But the walls do keep out the incorporeal petitioners and they keep out the larvae and they keep out the other native inhabitants of the plane. So I assume that 
if you open the gate and let them in, they could come in. But if the gate is closed, they can't get in because there's something about the interior of this town that keeps them out. I could see that. And that's nothing I've seen within text, but that is definitely something that a DM would probably build into their world. Yeah, that is from the third edition Manual of the Plains talking about the town of Death of Innocence. But those are the two big features of Niflheim. Yeah, there's not as much mechanically to work with as there is on the first level. But again, depending on where you want to draw your lore from, what kind of afterlife pantheon or results you want to throw in, you still can do a lot down here. Yes. And once you get down into the second and third level of Hades, you do still run into the occasional patrol of demons or devils, but you're not going to run into them nearly as often because they don't go to the lower levels unless they have a real good reason to do it. Yeah, because the fight's largely up on the first level. Not saying that you're not going to find patrols that might jump levels to try to find a strategic advantage. But by and large, the slog is on level one. Yeah. And so going on to the third layer. The third layer is called Pluton. Obviously a reference to the Roman god Pluto, who is the appropriated Greek god Hades. So named after the Roman god of the underworld. Right. But I mean, Hades got the whole realm named after him. So Pluton. Eventually. Level yeah. But again, this is where... So again, that first level is going to have your aspect of your Babylonian, your Sumerian, even your Egyptian concept of the afterworld. Again, you have that gray expanse, mud, dirt, clay, very hard to move through. Like I said, it's a slog. It really does kind of drain you of everything. Your second layer, again, is your concept of Norse afterlife. Again, you've got Niflheim. You've got the Hall of Hell, the things like that, the corruption of innocence, all of that thing. So this third level, because they have to be thrown in Western culture... This is where you're going to get most of your Greek and Roman influence. Those concepts of afterlife are going to come here on this third layer. And so within Pluton is the underworld, which is where the god Hades has his realm. And there is actually a passageway that leads out the back of the underworld up into Mount Olympus, which is on, it's either in Arborea or Mount Celestia. Can't remember which but there is actually a passageway in Planescape that goes from Hades up to Mount Olympus that if you're good enough, you can actually get into and go from one to the other. And again, this could lead to a whole number of scenarios. A campaign arc or an adventure is trying to climb from Hades to ascend to Mount Olympus for whatever reason. Maybe you're trying to do a whole Scythian type thing where you're trying to go and spurn a god that killed you for whatever reason. You're like, nope, don't want to be dead. One of my favorite mythological people is actually Sisyphus. Everybody knows him getting stuck rolling that boulder. But he got stuck rolling that boulder because he's one of the few people to escape Hades. And he did it three times. So, I mean, if you ever get a chance to dig into some of his lore, he's kind of a badass. Yeah. He's tricksy, tricksy. So, yeah, he makes me smile. So a campaign like that where you're trying to figure a way, or if you kind of want to do like a Hercules or a Deucalion type thing where you want to go to the underworld and save a loved one or a family member, maybe do some deals for Persephone and then kind of fight your way back up top to Olympus for whatever retribution or whatever you want to seek would be a good way to do that as well. Yeah, that sounds like a really cool idea. So. The underworld is surrounded by a massive wall of marble, unbroken except for one section with a double gate of hammered bronze. 
and there is a creature guarding this gate. You may know about Cerberus, the three-headed dog that guards the realm of Hades, but in this particular one, at least in third edition, he is a gargantuan three-headed hound, quote, made from the squirming, decaying bodies of hundreds of petitioners. And I completely missed that line of text when I was reading all of my... Which is everything absolutely was, terrifying. That is, I mean, a giant three-headed dog, angry dog, is scary enough on its own, but dog made up of bodies, that is, wow. Yeah, and gargantuan to boot, so this thing is like 40 feet tall. So, like, I see his teeth now made of, like, broken, sharpened thigh bones and femurs and stuff like that, you know. And not just like a hound's mouth, but just jagged, you know. So, yeah, my mind went way, way into left field with this. Kind of awesome, kind of terrifying. Yeah, it's great. And so you're typically not going to see a whole lot of individuals coming down here. But occasionally you'll find devils or demons who are trying to collect the soul of a commander that has been actually for real real killed to break them out of the underworld so that they can return to the blood war and according to the second edition book imprisoned here are many fallen tyrants and vain heroes so this would be all of the two-bit evil dictators that got too big for their britches yeah so i see that again i definitely get a dante's inferno feel from this because he definitely made some very political points in his writings so he threw in specific people or people pop culture that would have been known for his time the other comic i really get a feel for is kind of the spawn comics i've referenced them before but again you had those leaders where they would go and they would find leaders and tyrants and they would hold them in hell so they had leaders for their eventual army so i could kind of see this here where you had that and i could even see some of the devils or demons maybe trying to come down here and petition to try to find commanders or captains for their forces on some of the other layers as well. Yeah, and it does describe the gates of the underworld as being dented and scratched by all of the people trying to break in and trying to break out. That in itself, one who wants to break into the city, that is terrifying for as bad as you know what it is or something that has to be worse outside. Oh no, this is the people that were trying to get in for a purpose. They're trying to get in for a specific soul to break them out. Okay, I can see that. That makes more sense. The other thing I kind of picture is that whole World War Z where you've got the bodies of zombies and corpses kind of built up along the walls trying to get in or, you know, people scratching at the walls trying to get out. You mean the abomination of a movie that had nothing to do with a book? Yeah, I mean, they really could have named it Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol for as much as it had to do with the book it was based off of. I mean, Max Brooks wrote an amazing book, World War Z, and I heard an interview when they asked how much writing he did for the movie. He said, well, I signed my name for the check. Yeah, so that's pretty much it. That said, that one scene was definitely a well-done scene. And, uh, you know, just the onslaught of bodies. Yeah, I could go on a 20-minute diatribe on everything that got wrong in that movie we don't have time for that, so I'm not going to. Fair enough. But so yeah, that would be what the scars on the outside of the gates are. And I can see now, especially with this third edition description of Cerberus being composed of the rotting bodies of petitioners, I can definitely see this party of devils under command of this pit fiend comes in and somehow they manage to actually slay Cerberus, right? And they're going and they're starting to break down the gate to try and get in. And then the body of Cerberus reconstitutes itself because it's all made of dead bodies. 
and incorporates the fallen devils that it just slew into its body. Oh my. And it comes back at him. That would be, I want to see Matt Mercer do this for one of his parties. Just with the voices and the way he presents his story. I would love to see this. I would love to see the reactions. Uh, That would make my heart twitter. Oh, that would be absolutely terrifying. Matt, can you please do this for us? Please, please. (laughs) No, be one of the 30,000 people who try to get his attention every day. Oh yeah, I'm sure. Anyway, I don't know like how he has time to breathe because I'm sure he's just like buried the fan mail. I'm not certain that he does. Anyway. Honestly. <laughs> anyway, so that covers the three layers of Hades. Going to talk a little bit about the sort of creatures that you can find because there is a very specific sort of environment and a very specific sort of creature affiliation that you're going to get with Hades. And there are some creatures that are specifically found in Hades in the older editions. Obviously, you're going to find all of your Yugoloths because they spawn in on the first layer. You're going to find all your demons and devils because it's a battleground, especially on the first layer. Totally makes sense. Obviously, you're going to find your larvae. Obviously, you're going to find your night hags. Right. You're going to find nightmares because some of them will be coming in as mounts for some of the more powerful devils. And perhaps the devil who controls them is slain in a battle and the nightmare escapes. And so I can almost see like herds of nightmares, kind of like the Mustangs out west. Just herds of nightmares that roam the plains of Hades. That is terrifying and beautiful both. So you've got those specifically on Niflheim. You're going to end up having a lot of the creatures that you find in Norse mythology. So you're going to have things like dire wolves. You're going to have things like trolls and ogres. Uh, You're going to have possibly lycanthropes. Um, I could see you throwing some of those in. Think of Beowulf and, you know, Grendel and Grendel's mother. They would both be right at home in this particular layer of Hades. Absolutely. By that regard, I would say you'd probably very easily find some dragons kicking down in here as well. Oh yeah, you will definitely find some dragons, especially the chromatic ones because they are more evil aligned. Personally, I would say probably more the blacks and greens, just based off of their affinities, you know, the poison and the acid. I can see that. Blacks tend to like those swampy bog areas anyway, so I mean, they'd be fine in a big mud pit. Yeah, and I'm pretty sure they're immune to most diseases too because they live in swamps. But some of the wonderful, weird creatures that you get from second edition, wastrels, which are basically great big ravens that will attack in flocks. So you can have like 60 of them show up at a time and they will come in and they're intelligent so they'll divide up evenly between each of the potential creatures in the group they'll fly in and they'll attack and then they'll fly off and then they'll come back in half an hour and do another pass by i love those kind of skirmishing battles i mean it's not even really a so much a skirmishing battle it's you see them coming you may have a round or two to prepare yourself they come in and they hit you for one round of combat and then they all fly off unless they manage to knock someone down really weak and then they'll circle around and come back for an immediate second pass That's the sort of tactics that they use. And they will whittle you down until they are able to take you out. Very nice. So you have these things called viper trees, which are absolutely terrifying. They are sort of demonic snake tree hybrids. So they start off as kind of a 
taproot snake looking thing and they will crawl along until they find a good spot and then they will plant themselves and grow up as a tree that instead of branches with leaves on it has branches that are snakes and they will apparently attack devils on sight and they feed on intelligent creatures oh my yeah so we've got those we've got abrians which are they're actually kind of funny to look at looking at the second edition artwork they're fiendish ostriches with little grabby t-rex arms <laughs> that is both hilarious and terrifying i think the one in in the monstrous compendium is like eating a lizard or something it's got like half a lizard hanging out of its beak so we've got those we've got leomars which are primarily found in the outlands but they do also appear in the first level of hades basically they're plain touched lions that are immune to magic missiles, potentially force damage as a whole, because I think magic missile was the only force damage spell in second edition. I could be completely wrong on that. But I mean, if I were to bring them up to fifth edition, because I don't think they even made it into third edition. But if I were to bring them up, I would probably make them just completely immune to force damage. Oh, yeah. And they are 90% invisible when they stand still. Oh, wow. And they're kind of a weird physical look. They've got much larger front quarters than hind quarters. So they have that hunched shoulder look, kind of like a hyena. Okay. But yeah, they're kind of big and mean. Yeah, those definitely sound and, like... And they hunt in a pride. So you're going to have like six to eight of them at a time. Yeah, I was going to say that definitely sounds like something you don't want to come across in a pack at night. And you could just be walking along. And if you walk by a group of them that's sitting still waiting for you to come by so that they can pounce on you you're probably not going to see them because they magically blend into their environment. Yeah, I kind of get the feel of like the whole Night Elf Shadow Meld from WoW, which I always hated in PvP. God, that pissed me off so much. <laughs> <laughs> so another thing is actually Bloodthorn. Now, we use Bloodthorn in some stuff whenever we were doing the creatures and stuff with the World Build With Us crossover. I didn't know that Bloodthorn was actually a real D&D thing until I started looking through the Monstrous Compendium for second edition. And it, oddly enough, does about the same thing. Is it? I think the thorns are coated with something that whenever you get into it, the wounds don't close, and so you just bleed out. Very nice. Great minds and all that. Yeah. I mean, it's a pretty self-descriptive name for a plant. Absolutely. So the next thing on the list is called a Terlin, T-E-R-L-E-N. They're these weird winged sharks with humanoid faces. They swarm. So imagine how terrifying a school of piranhas is. Now imagine if those piranhas could fly. Oh my. Yeah, that's what you're dealing with here. Oh, that's just wrong. Some things should not have wings. <laughs> yeah, they do have this weird kind of almost humanoid face on them with that giant shark mouth with all the pointy teeth in it. They're kind of terrifying. I'm not going to lie. They're kind of terrifying. Then you have wraith worms, which are snakes that can turn incorporeal and they had level drain on their bite attacks. Again, you kind of saw something like this in various Blizzard products. The concept of a mana worm kind of comes to mind. So you see things like this in various lore. Wraithworm is just an awesome name to have as well. And but again, most people in various gaming communities should have some sort of feel for these. And it does. it is something that you're not going to see in 5th edition, at least as it existed in 2nd edition, because level drain isn't a thing anymore. And I'm glad that level drain isn't a thing anymore because it was such a nightmare to deal with. 
as a bookkeeping aspect. Oh yeah, that was, I mean, the way they took levels and XP in second edition was just brutal. brutal. If you wanted to build something or buy something, or even if you dropped to zero HP, you were losing all kind of XP. So like I said, just your basic crafting skills would cost a certain amount of XP generally. So if you weren't careful, you would never level. Yes, you could be 90% of the way to your next level and then you make three potions and you've lost all your progress. Yeah, that is one thing I do not miss from second edition. Yeah. And then the last thing from the second edition book that I really wanted to point out is something called the Shadow Drake. So it is an oriental style serpent dragon. They live in the river sticks. Okay, I'm following you there. That's kind of terrifying. So I'm seeing like an evil version of Nessie kicking around. Okay, so aside from the fact that they're going to be like a challenge rating 25 for the adult ones, ignoring that because the fact that they can live in the river sticks is terrifying in and of itself. There's not a whole lot that can because the waters are deadly to almost every creature in existence. They have a breath attack that they rarely use because it's basically a disintegrate. Oh. Yeah, they basically have disintegrate as a breath weapon. I like it. Oh, and they can burrow. Oh my. So yes, they are absolutely terrifying. But that's the bulk of the best year that I was able to draw from the older books. The stuff from third edition is kind of bland and uninspired. Yeah, they kind of left things behind third edition. Fourth edition, again, it's the dark times. Fifth edition, we got our bountiful paragraph. But really, this leads a lot to the DM, which can be a good thing and a bad thing both. If you're imaginative, if you want to make your own story, if you want to take your favorite myth or folklore with your party, you know, you want to do Hercules' descent into Hades where he can rescue his wife and atone for all the horrible things he did because Hercules did some really terrible stuff in a rage or two. Kind of had a bad temper. Again, read your Greek mythology. You can totally put that together and you've got all the pieces you need to put stuff together. If you want to kind of come way out of left field, if you want to do just a one-off, like I said, a tower dungeon run, you've got that there. If you want to dig into some Norse mythology or, or some mythology that people don't normally get into, you've got all of the pieces there it's just not pre-assembled for you. I tend to like that. So, you know, this would be kind of your higher difficulty rating as putting a campaign together, but you definitely have all the pieces you need. Yes, definitely. Yeah, this is something where if you have the opportunity to go back to some of the older lore, there is so much fodder to draw from for campaign inspiration. They put a ton of time and effort into putting all of this lore together. All right, I think that pretty much does it for today. This had a little bit more to it than some of the other planes that we have gone into so far. Right. Again, just because there are so many mechanical pieces to work with here, going back to my statement at the beginning, while the scenery and the atmosphere of Hades is very drab, there is a lot to work with and a lot you can actually do. Yeah. And when you take Hades and compare it to our last episode of Elysium, Elysium was big and bright and shiny and looked like it was real busy, but it really wasn't all that busy. This is rightly the exact opposite. Yes. Well, I mean, it is the diametrically opposed plane, so it makes sense that this is the exact opposite, that it's this bleak, drab, boring-looking place that has just so much stuff going on. Absolutely. Our next episode, our next plane that we're going to be going into is Limbo. The Chaos plane Chaos. Who? <laughs> we're both really excited about going into limbo because there's just a lot that you can do because you can do literally anything because it's chaos. 
yeah pure chaos again this is one of those realms that tends to get glossed over real quick so this will be a fun dive and also slod yes so Thank you, everyone, for joining us for another episode. If you have any ideas or suggestions or comments, please send us an email, undercommontaste at gmail.com, or send us a direct message through our Twitter account, at UCT Homebrew. I'm still doing our Shakespeare and Insult page-a-day calendar-inspired RP prompts six days a week. They post to the Twitter account, and then I cross-post them to the Instagram and Facebook accounts, which are undercommontaste. We have a Patreon, patreon.com slash undercommontaste, where all of our write-ups go up. I'm currently working on creating a primer for the elemental plane of air that's going to be taking a lot of the older materials, updating them to 5th edition, adding a little bit of my own personal flair to it. James is also helping with this and giving you something that you can use to actually run a game in the elemental plane of air because it doesn't look like Wizards is going to be going into the inner planes anytime real soon. Not in the next year or so. Definitely not in calendar year 2021. They've already announced all the books for that. Well, we are going to finally go into the Feywild, which I'm excited about. Absolutely. About time. You can find our podcast anywhere you find podcasts, iHeartRadio, iTunes, Spotify, Google. As always, rate and review us to help promote our visibility so we can get more ideas to you. And so with that said, thank you once again for joining us tonight. We will see you next time in limbo. Happy gaming. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Undercommon Taste. If you enjoyed what you heard, please pass it along to your friends. If you have comments, suggestions, or ideas, you can email them to us at undercommontaste at gmail.com. If we like your idea, it may make it into a future episode. You can find us wherever you find your podcasts, and we would greatly appreciate any likes, ratings, and comments you could provide. Find us on social media. We're at undercommontaste on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube, and on Twitter at the handle at UCTHomebrew. If you would like to help support the show financially, please visit our Patreon page at patreon.com slash undercommontaste. Our theme is Massacre Anne, written and performed by Mary Crowell and used with permission. You can find her online at marycrowell.bandcamp.com or on Patreon at patreon.com slash drmarycrowell. Thanks again for listening, and stay safe. You'll hear from us again soon.